All right, everyone, welcome to our Mixer Chat series. This is a part of Mixer Type. In Mixer Chat, what we do is we interview people who have done some incredible things in their lives and have a story that they want to share with the world. And as they share their story, we dive deeper into their own identity. Because the thing about identity is that it tends to morph over time. And the person that you started out on your journey with is not necessarily who you end up being long term. But how do you go about navigating those decisions? What happens when you hit the zenith, the apex of your journey? And how do you transition and become something even bigger and better? And that's not always the case for a lot of people. Sometimes people kind of plateau. They've kind of hit their peak and they've fallen off. But then they always want to go back up and hit that next high, that next high note. And I think it's very important that as you start to pursue your goals and you start to reach for the best version of yourself, as you go about finding yourself, unlocking your potential, making meaningful connections and becoming the hero of your own story, that you're constantly rewriting your own biography. And so today I want to introduce you to Jonathan Horton. Uh, is it okay if I just call you John? Yeah, go ahead. That's what everybody calls me. Cool. And I figured as much. So, <laughs> John is a seven times USA national champion. He's also a two-time Olympian. He's a two-time Olympic medalist. I mean, that in and of itself, I want you to understand like the magnitude of that, the value in that statement. It's not just the fact that he became an Olympian, which in and of itself is something that most, I will never be an Olympian. Like most people will never, ever hit that peak. But not only did he actually qualify, I mean, he made it past the Olympic trials. He made it into the Olympics, and then he actually became a medalist. He's actually a silver medal holder, from what I remember. And so, I mean, that's it's insane. And so, on top of that, not only does he do that, he also he's a recurring a participant on American Ninja American Ninja Warrior, which it turns out is another monster in and of itself. It's like just because you're a gymnast, even an Olympic gymnast, it doesn't necessarily mean that that skill translates into what you do as an American Ninja Warrior. And so. I just want to kind of bring John to the stage over here. I want to kind of share his story and hopefully we can inspire you to also pursue your potential. So welcome, John. Yeah, thanks so much, Numair. Happy to be on. Absolutely. So, John, uh, let's just uh, start off by just uh, sharing with the audience a little bit about yourself. Like, who are you? I know I introduced you, but just talk about your path and what led you up to becoming that Olympian. Yeah. So, you know, obviously most people know me for my Olympic career, um, did gymnastics for 28 years before I retired at the age of 32, two years ago. And so, um, had a very long career before I got into American Ninja Warrior. Um, now married, been married for 11 years. I've got two small kids, a uh, seven-year-old and a four, well, yeah, four-year-old. My kids just had birthdays. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm a family man now. Um, kind of living a more, I guess, what you can call a, a normal life compared to what I used to live as a professional athlete. You know, you say professional athlete, and most people are like, "Oh, what what sport? Football, basketball, baseball?" I'm like, "No, I was one of the few people that made a living as a professional gymnast for many, many years." Um, you know, I got started when I was four. Um, actually, I'll tell you kind of a, a ridiculous story how I got into sure. the sport. Um, I uh, when I was four years old, I was kind of a wild, like rambunctious ADHD kid. Like I, I was just bouncing off the walls. My parents could barely control me. Um, well, one day my mom took me shopping with her and she lost me in the middle of a target. And um, so she started searching for me, couldn't find me anywhere. And uh, five minutes goes by, nothing. She's panicking. 10 minutes goes by, still nothing. Finally, the manager spots me, comes up to my mom and says, ma'am, calm down. I found your son. 
And he pointed to the ceiling and he was like, oh, well, he's up there. <laughs> because there was a 25 foot support beam in the middle of the store that I wrapped my arms and legs around and climbed all the way to the top. And um, I, I don't actually remember doing it. My mom says it was one of the craziest moments of her life, seeing her four-year-old son 25 feet up in a store. Uh, but I came down the pole, didn't realize I'd done anything wrong. She told my dad that night when he got off of work and he was like, wow, our son's some kind of a freak. We need to put him in gymnastics or something. And they enrolled me into a gym the very next day. Um, have, neither of my parents ever did sports. They, they weren't athletes at all. And they had no idea what they were getting into. And what do you know, 18 years later, I made my first Olympic team and won two Olympic medals. So it's a, it was a wild ride, man. That's incredible. So you're climbing this 25-foot pole. And like the psychologist, I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I studied psychology at Temple University. But the, the thinker in me makes you start to analyze that story. I mean, there's like this whole nature versus nurture debate type thing going on. Like you as a four-year-old, you instinctively just decided to climb the 25-foot pole. So I guess my question is, was gymnastics something that was in your DNA? Just Is that something that you just you were gifted at that other kids weren't as gifted with? So uh, that's a great question. Um, my gift as a kid was that I was fearless and I had a lot of energy. But uh, as I speak on hundreds, if not thousands of stage, stages um, at this point, I've been speaking for the last 10 years now um, corporately. I always, like my whole story is the fact that although I was fearless and had energy, I was not gifted and talented in gymnastics. Um, I was not the strongest kid. I wasn't the fastest. I'm a notoriously slow learner at all things that I do in my life. I'm so slow to pick up new skills. And um, I actually had zero success as a gymnast for many years. People are always surprised to hear. I didn't actually win my first competition until I was almost 16 years old. And I remember as a young kid, always having this chip on my shoulder and feeling like I'm behind. I'm never going to be as good as that kid, but if I want to have a shot, I need to do this. I'm never going to be good as that kid. If I need to have a shot, I need to do this. And that was always my mindset. And I think the fact that I wasn't that kid that was always on top of everything that I did in the sport made me outwork my competitors. And before I knew it, kind of like the the sport of gymnastics and a whole lot like life is it's a marathon versus a sprint. I just kind of stuck with the pack for as long as I could until too many people burned out. And then I took the leap. Um, and I'm extremely thankful for the mindset that I had. And I still kind of carry that mindset in my life now. Like, okay, like I'm not as good as other people at this thing. So I just need to outwork everyone. And you'll find that a lot of Olympians kind of like that, you know, the Michael Phelps and the Simone Biles, the Usain Bolts, they're very rare human beings. The people that were breaking world records when they were kids. Um, I was that guy that nobody expected to do anything in the sport. And it, the fact that it took me so long to get anywhere is still mind blowing to me today. And coaches will tell you, like when we worked with John as a kid, he was not that superstar kid that we thought, oh, that's the one. That's the kid that's going to get to the Olympic Games. I, it was inside of me. I was the one that thought, well, those Olympic team spots are available. I just have to figure out how to get there. It's not like anyone before me did anything so special I can't figure out. I've just got to keep moving until something clicks. And that's what, that's what continued to happen in my older age in the sport. That's an incredible perspective. Um, sorry, yeah, that's an incredible perspective to have that, you weren't 
born with like this special talent. And I think that's what makes you more human. Like when you take a look at someone like Simone Biles or Hussein Bolt or Michael Phelps and you joke about it, but these people, I mean, they, they're genetically gifted. I, I think in the 2008 Olympics, like Phelps almost lost, but because his hands just a slight big, bigger than the opponents, like just by a hundredth of a second, he touches yep. the other end of the pole and then he gets the gold medal for that one stroke. And it's like, yes, there, there will be anomalies in every sport. Now that's not to say that Michael Phelps didn't train. I mean, he trained his heart out like for like, oh, yeah. hours and hours a day, but it's almost like um, I was watching this video, this interview with Dorian Gates and uh, Joe Rogan. Did you see that uh, interview? I listened to a lot of Joe Rogan, but I missed that one. So it's a phenomenal interview. Dorian Yates pretty much is kind of, he's just so honest about it. Dorian Yates is a former bodybuilder. He can't do it anymore. He's just tore, has so many injuries. But <laughs> Joe asks him, so can anyone become Mr. Olympia? And Dorian goes, nope, it's in the genetics. And like, yeah. Dor- Joe's like, what do you mean? He's like, no, listen, you can have someone train and get really, really, really good. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be Mr. Olympia. You got to have a certain hand size. You got to have a certain shoulder ratio. There's a certain thing that he can just look at someone and just know that they, they cannot, they'll never get to Mr. Olympia. There's only yeah. one in millions of people. And so that's not to say that you can't get to the stage, you know, but you're not, there's only going to be one Mr. Olympia every year. And the whole thing, the reason why I bring that up is here you are illustrating this point that you started out with this incredible energy, you had this perseverance and drive. And the way you kind of dissected it was you looked into the future, you saw that the Olympics is a possibility. And it's not something that hadn't been done before. Now, sure, it hadn't been done in your family. And sure, you might not be Michael Phelps, but that doesn't matter. The fact is there are spots, there are spots available every four years. Why can't you be one of the people that can adorn those spots. And yeah. so it sounds like it, regardless of whatever limitations or self-limiting beliefs, what people said of you or kind of people kind of took you for granted or they just never thought that you would be that Olympian, somehow you decided to push through. So what I'm curious about is that that's an incredibly, that's an incredible perspective to have for number one, especially with an experience like what you had at age four and then realizing and hearing from you that you didn't actually place in any sort of competition until you were 16. That's a number of years where it was like nine years or so, more than 12 years. Yeah. I can't do math in my head either, man. Don't worry about it. Yeah, there you go. So 12 (laughs) years, right? That you just, what made you decide to keep pushing for this? And at at four, did you know what the Olympics were? I mean, were you just kind of just, your dad and your mom put you into gymnastics classes and now you're just having fun. Where did that drive awaken where you're like, wait a minute, this is a possibility for me. Yeah, no, great question. Um, you know, of course, when I'm four years old, my parents are putting me in gymnastics. I didn't know what I was getting into. I had no idea what the Olympics were. I didn't even know what a flip was. Like I was just in there like swinging on the ropes and the rings and the high bars and driving the coaches crazy. Cause I, like I said, I, I'm pretty sure I had like ADHD. And I just never medicated for it. I, I've got a pretty good control of it now as a as an adult. But um, yeah, I I just was doing it because I I enjoyed being in the gym and playing. At first, I didn't really have a mission or a goal for a really long time. It wasn't until I was ten years old actually that I um, kind of understood what the Olympics were. Which it was 1996. 
I'll never forget watching my first Olympics on TV and being glued to the screen and just being like, whoa, like this is a big deal. Like these, I can tell, you know, just the energy in the, the arenas and seeing the track and field stars and the gymnasts and the swimmers. And I, I just remember kind of staring at my screen thinking like, I think I want to do that. Like that's, that looks like that's the pinnacle of all sports to me. That was, it just kind of struck me and the light bulb went off. I was like, well, my sport is at the Olympics. Let's go for it. And, you know, it's crazy as a 10 year old who had zero success, I can remember very distinctly thinking to myself, like, okay, I want to be an Olympian, but I, I know the likelihood is slim to none. Like I, I had that realization. I knew that getting there was possible but not probable, um, you know, especially in gymnastics. Every four years, only five athletes in the United States out of thousands and thousands and thousands of gymnasts, only five get to make the Olympic team. Really? Oh, that's it. Just five. Actually, it used to be five. Now it's four. In 2021, for the next Olympics, it's only going to be four. Um, and so I remember, like, in my head, I was like, okay, this is, like, this is a crazy goal. Um, but I want it. And I, I knew a lot of other kids that they, like the Olympics was not even a thought in their brains. They were like, oh, like, it's not going to happen. You know, like, what are the chances that I'm going to be one of those kids? I had that same thought, but I, I this is kind of weird. And I've tried to explain this to people before. In a strange way, I, I trained and lived out my gymnastics career with a sense of fear. And that sense of fear was, what if? That question of what if. Every single day, uh, this, and this fear started to really settle in, probably as I became a teenager. Every day when I was training, I always wondered, what if I did a little more? What if I planned a little bit more? What if I ate a little bit better? What if I got a better night's sleep? And this idea of what if started to like really drive me because I didn't want to look back one day and wonder, well, what if I had done those things? Would I have had a better shot? And it's like I, I played a, a very intense psychological game with myself every day in, in training. Um, I would see the other kids training with me and the few other kids that also had Olympic aspirations. And I would wonder, like, am I doing as much as them? Or what if I did a little bit more? And when I got to college, this intensified. I always wondered, like, okay, I know I'm, I'm a student athlete. I need to study. I need to train. But what if I got into the gym a little bit sooner than my teammates and did a little bit extra? And so I, I, I speak to a lot of athletes and ambitious young people today, and I ask them that same question. At the end of your life, are you going to have this huge question out there of, well, what if I had done this? And if you didn't do it, are you going to regret it? Um, I didn't like, I, I think that's the fear. I didn't want to have regrets at the end of my, my gymnastics career. And, um, you know, what's crazy is I, I accomplished a lot, but even now I kind of look back and go, man, I think I probably could have, could have eaten a little bit better. Maybe I could have cut out some of the sodas that I drank when I was when I was, you know, on the weekends and had a day off, well, what if I had done this? And what if I had done that? Maybe instead of silver, I would have won gold, you know? So it's like, I have these crazy thoughts and they drive me every single day. So 
Um, you know, that's a, a long answer to your question, but that's kind of getting to into my my headspace of of why I am the way I, that I am. So that was it. Once again, an incredible answer. And just to make sure I, I hear you perfectly, it's like what you're saying is that at, at the beginning, it was just a fun thing to do. You're four years old. Hey, let's just go do some gymnastics. At some point, as you started to have more and more fun, you started to get better and better. And then at some point, for some reason, and this is where I'm unclear of because it seems like all right, so I, I, before I summarize, I, I want to put, uh, let me just put a note here. I'm actually writing some notes here. So yeah. I'm going to, uh, something that the person I spoke with last week said, Hans Trezina, who's also an Olympian, about the dark side of Olympic uh, of Olympians. Uh, so I'm going to put a note there and then cycle back to it just so that I don't forget. But going back to what you just said, so you're four years old and now suddenly you see that there is this possibility. And you're driven towards it. But then you started to really be motivated by this fear, which is like, you know, you trained every day as if like, all right, what if I don't get there? What if I don't give it all that I've got? Like, and you started to reverse engineer from that perspective. So in that case, you were looking at the ones and zeros. You're looking at your weight. You're looking at like uh, how many hours you're putting at the gym. If there was someone out there working harder than you, you would take notice of that. And you wanted to make sure that no matter what, you left no stone unturned. I remember just learning about the fact that when you were in college, you would just wake up around 5 a.m., put in two hours in the morning before classes started. And then after you get through classes, after the day was over, you put in another four hours that same night. And that those are like those four years of you doing that were just insane. They're some of the hardest years of your life. But yeah. it's also interesting noting, hearing from you that even though you've put all that work into it because it's not just you just going to gymnastics class of four no like this became your life the embodiment of your vision everything that you did sacrifices that you made to make you get to where you ended up getting to but even then looking back you're just like you know i could have done better i know in this one competition where like against all odds, you didn't listen to your coaches. You didn't listen to anyone. They told you not to do the special like type of like flip. I'm not an expert in gymnastics, but you did a bunch of flips in the air and they told you not to do it. And you ended up doing it and you ended up getting a silver. And the reason you got the silver is because you didn't stick the landing well enough. Yeah, You yeah. just kind of stumbled, tumbled one step forward. And that was the difference between you getting gold and silver. Yeah, And so those are the little things I think that, it sounds like what you're hinting at is there was these little micro moments that even though when you're in the moment and you're just very human, right? It seems like, oh, I'm doing the best that I can. But looking back at it, you know that, all right, had I eaten a little better, had I slept a little better, had I done a little bit, da, 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 I, I would have been further ahead. So I guess my question is like, even though you have this hindsight perspective, is there some sort of regret that maybe you should have done better or, or had you made peace with that or what? Oh, I'm, I'm at total peace. Um, you know, I, I think that life is about moving forward and um, regardless of what you did in the past, everything's a learning experience, right? And you can take those past experiences and pour them into the next phase of your life, the next chapter of your life. Um, you know, there, of course, like if I could go back and do it all again, which I can't, it's not possible. Yeah, there's some little minute details that I would have shifted and changed. Um, but it, overall, 
I, I think because of my mindset and the way that I, I trained, um, I, I'm very satisfied with how it went. Of course, like, you, you know, the, the story you were telling about the, the skills that I wasn't, my coach didn't want me to do. Um, you know, that was my high bar routine at the Olympic games. I did a radical routine that nobody had ever seen in history. I went for it. And, um, I had actually never even completed that routine before, but I was thinking to myself, like, what do I have to lose? If I don't go for it, I'm going to regret it. Went for it, nailed it. Um, of course I wish that I had stuck the landing and won gold, but overall, like I have to, you know, come to the realization of, wow, I did something really special. It wasn't perfect, but I'm extremely thankful. And I, I try to live my life with a lot of gratitude. Um, not focusing on what I don't have versus focusing on what I do have. Um, it, it's really easy as human beings to look around us and think about the things that we don't have and we wish and get really down on ourselves about it. But I got to go to the Olympics. I won two medals. Um, I have an awesome family and I'm very thankful. And so I focus on those things and it keeps me from dwelling on, you know, I, Oftentimes, I think so many people dwell on the little things that they wish they could have accomplished instead of looking forward to new things that they can accomplish. Um, and so, you know, again, like I'm babbling here about, you know, my mind, but it's if I wish people could get into my head and really kind of see um, that I'm, I'm very much a glasses half full kind of guy, um, while at the same time thinking, could I have filled it a little bit more at one point? So I've got this silver lining approach, but I want more approach at the same time. That's a, that's a really great perspective to have, and it's a very healthy perspective. So one of the things that Hans told me last week was there is this dark side to Olympians where so he made it to the Olympic Village, and it was incredible. I mean, and what he saw was that by and far, these people were just normal people. There wasn't really anything super special about them. Yeah, sure, there was some fanfare, like Usain Bolt would come in, and people would just kind of crowd him. Yeah. But for the most part, these are normal people. But what he also said was that a lot of these Olympians, what they would, what drove them was some negative experience in the past, like someone didn't believe in them or maybe they were picked on or bullied or there was some sort of like experience that caused people to doubt them. And in some ways, not all of them, but a lot of the Olympians that he came across, like there was like this shadow lingering within their lives. It was almost like what he said, the way he described it was they wanted to win at the Olympics so that they could prove the world wrong. And in some cases, like these people, they would make it, they would get to the point where they're on stage and sometimes they'll place a medal, sometimes they won't. And there is that moment. I mean, it's so real and it's surreal at the same time, but then it passes and then they realize that no matter how much they succeed or how far they get, almost like the, the thing that they were trying to resolve, that conflict it still doesn't get resolved. And in some cases, they have to realize that the, the way to resolve it is not to go about it out of a sense of like trying to cover up a wound or a hole, but to go about it with gratitude, love and grace and presence, because kind of how you summarize it yourself. 
Um, what's your take on that? I mean, are, is there a lot of that type of like negative, not negative, but that type of ambition in the Olympics as well? Or do most people pursue it just for the love of the game? Like, where do you stand within that? Yeah. So I think it's different for everybody. Right. Um, I, I do know a lot of athletes that have that dark side, that almost like that revenge, you know, I, I've had a couple very close teammates of mine that I know that they were driven by the desire to prove people wrong. Um, I would say that those, I don't even call them dark moments in my life. I had moments in my career. Um, I, I've given myself the self-proclaimed title of most successful failure in the history of my sport. Um, you know, I have had the most drastic ups and downs of pretty much any gymnast I've ever heard about. Um, you know, just for instance, like I, I led Team USA to the worst performance in history in 2006. Went to the world championships. I fell six times, the most falls from any individual gymnast in US history. And we finished in 13th place because of me. Um, you know, that was supposed to be like my, you know, coming to greatness moment as a gymnast. And I lost all the trust in my teammates, my coaches, my fans, my everybody. All of a sudden, it was like, wow, John Horton just buckled under the pressure. We should never allow him to compete for us again. You know, it was a moment like that that could have created a lot of darkness in me. But I don't call it darkness. I call it my, that was like my, in hindsight now, of course, hindsight's always 2020. Um, and that was like my moment of fire. Like that moment turned me into the Olympian that I became. And that wasn't me trying to prove anybody wrong. That wasn't me trying to show the world that I wasn't a failure or a choker. That was me trying to prove to myself that I was capable of so much more. Um, and I think that that's a big difference between me and um, the the people that do kind of live or train for that. Like that, I keep using the word revenge. It's the only word I can think of right now. But that revenge training, like for me, it was almost like a revenge on myself. Like, John, you're better than that. You have worked so hard. You deserve to go out there and perform and make yourself happy. And um, I, you know, I loved performing. And I just remember thinking to myself, I, like before one of my routines, I'd be like, oh man, this is going to feel so fantastic. It doesn't matter how nervous you are, how much, how much anxiety you have. When this is over and when you finally like done what you're capable of, this is going to feel fantastic. And I'm like, I had these like inner feelings of like what I'm going to feel like when it, when I finally do what I know I'm capable of. So I, I can honestly say like, I never thought like I'm trying to prove this coach wrong or that athlete wrong, or I, I have to beat that guy to be satisfied. Um, it was really all like, you know, sounds selfish, but I was doing it for me. And, um, I think a lot of that comes from nobody ever put pressure on me. Like my mom and dad never told me, Hey, you've got to go become an Olympian. I, my coach never told me you've got to do this. My teammates never told me, um, you're not, you know, you're not capable of this. I, I think I'm very thankful and fortunate to not have had that negative, like energy in my life. I had a lot of great support. I think that's kind of what it boils down to people that just like, Hey, if you love this, go for it and do it for you. And that's, one of the things that I try to pour into a lot of athletes today is if you love your sport, it's going to be really hard, but go and do it for you. Leave no one's no stone unturned for you. Like this is about what you're capable of. And at the end of the day, like whatever you accomplish, 
uh, you've got to be satisfied with. And so, um, you know, I, I get the dark, the dark side of the Olympian thing, but again, I think it's all mindset and you don't have to have that dark side in, in your, you know, in your training. That's profound. So in your case, it's just about being driven just by you wanting to do it for yourself. And that that's incredibly important. I, I agree with that because in my life, I mean, there's been times when I've hit certain goals and I would have certain motivators. In fact, like uh, I want people to recognize me or I want uh, X, Y, Z, maybe I want money, maybe I want status, whatever. And like, I, I used to be heavier. I lost some weight. And then it was like, I would go to an event people noticed, but like, it just didn't stick with me. Like it was, it was one of those things where like, okay, like, yes, I appreciate the fact that you're recognizing it, but it's like, for me, I know what I did to put myself in a situation where I got to where I got to. And for me, it was almost like, it was great. Like I, I'm happy that I'm externally validated by these, uh, these people. That, that's wonderful. But it wasn't something that I could actually internalize for myself. And I realized that for me, that the only way I can make the feeling sustain and feel like worth, worth it for me is if I myself was happy with my own results and that was it. Yeah. And everything else is external to that. And I think that's what, what I'm hearing from you. It's like, in the end, like you went to, to the Olympics for you. You wanted to draw your line in the sand, leave your own mark in the world. You wanted to kind of have your personal underdog story because no one actually thought you would make it, but it wasn't for them. It was just for you. And you just kind of went through it. And because you loved the sport so much, you wanted to give it your all. And I think that's a very healthy way to go about doing it because, I mean, I, I like I said, I've never been to the Olympics, but I, I consider myself to be an athlete to some extent. I fought my first full contact fight last year and it's phenomenal. Oh, nice. I lost, but like, it, it, does, it doesn't matter because yeah. like when you train for something and you know that the person on the other end also wants to knock your head off just as badly <laughs> as you want to knock theirs off, there's something transformative about that. And you do it for you and you're a different person. Like you, for the rest of your life, no matter where you go, now you are a two-time Olympian, two-time Olympic medalist. And that's something that there's a sense of pride in that, that just you become an uncommon man amongst uncommon men and that's insane so I, I think that you're right like in terms of just being driven and using just positive energy to kind of put yourself through all that is it's great now what, what I'm curious about is what was the training like what was it like like for those years from four all the way up until I guess 32 you said or yeah Okay, so what was it like to train like an Olympian? What were the sacrifices you had to make? Yeah, uh, good question. I, I want to go back to that. Uh, first, I didn't know that you had done a full contact fight, and I want to ask you about that here in a second. I'm not, not trying to interview the interviewer here. but um, Oh, I this got... is a conversation. Oh, like, man. <laughs> you can, you can, look, dude, we don't have to stay scripted, and this is not a script at all. I'm just, I'm, yeah. I'm, I love hearing people's stories, and yeah. I know you don't, we don't have a big history or whatever, but I love hearing people's stories. So, Well, I, I want to I ask you about that just because I got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu two years ago. Okay. Um, and so I started training that, but no, one other thing that I wanted to add just real quick, cause it was on my head while you were talking. Um, I learned at a very young age that trying to, 
beat someone or prove someone wrong, the reason that it's so unsatisfying is because in the end, you realize that you've hurt that person. Um, and there were times when I was younger that there would be a, a rival of mine or a competitor that I wanted to beat so bad. And I made it very known that I was going to beat that guy. And I'm training to beat that person. And then when you finally beat them, it feels really good. Like, yes, I did it. But then you suddenly see the human side of that competitor. And you understand that, okay, like I, I, you know, of course, sports is sports, but we're still, like you said, we're humans. And if you really are a human, you go, okay, like I remember what it felt like for them to continually beat me over and over and over again. That hurt. And now they're in that place. And I think that's why it is so unsatisfying to us because it, it doesn't last long. It's like going on Twitter. You know, social media is so brutal right now. People go on Twitter and they say what they want to say behind, you know, closed doors. You can't see their face. You go and you bash on someone and you tell them that they're wrong. And, you know, the politics and stuff is crazy. And all of this is, I stay off of it now, but people continue to do it because it's so unsatisfying. So they go back and they do it again to get that quick like rush of adrenaline of I prove that person wrong. And then you're like, I, I need to go prove someone else wrong because I'm not satisfied with the one before. And that's how it kind of is. So that's why I say like, be thankful for who you are, what you've accomplished and, and train and be successful for yourself. Don't worry about anybody else because it's that like desire to, uh, um, you know, overcome another person. It just doesn't last long. It gets old very fast. And so I just wanted to throw that in there um, because I, I think oftentimes people don't look at the other side of, of that picture. Um, and I've talked to you know some other of my close friends about this before, and they're like, yeah, like you eventually you shatter someone else's dreams and you're really excited for yourself until you realize I've shattered someone else's dream. <laughs> you know, like um, it, it, there's something so profound about being a genuinely kind person that even your enemies or competitors, if you beat them, they're, think, they're, they're excited for you. And that is a, a delicate balance to life. Like if you're just a genuine human being, if you become the best, if you're on top of the world and people will still like you for it, that's power. But there are so many times that you see the person become the best in the world and everyone hates them for it because they didn't do it the right way because you've got to be a person first um and so uh i know i'm going on a little rant here but i know uh, yeah. beautiful yeah so i it's it's very important to think about people first and doing whatever it is that you're doing for yourself while loving on the people around you that is so powerful. And it's one of the, one of those things that's so subtle that people will hear that message and they'll say, oh, I understand it, but they really don't understand it because that perspective, when you're in a vacuum, when you're just like in grade school, when you're just kind of like coloring in between the lines and this other person colors slightly outside the lines and it's so like minuscule, it doesn't really matter as much. But that same perspective, once you're in something like a like a stadium where you're the very act of whatever you're about to do can become a world record. It can shatter someone else's record. I mean, that same perspective amplifies. They say that 
uh, money doesn't make a person good or evil, but just magnifies who you already are. So in your case, what you just said was like, imagine this person who became the best in the world, but they did it the wrong way and everyone hates them for it. And it's like, all right, yeah, you do, you're good. You're, you're, you're the greatest, but people hate you. I mean, you, and you probably hate yourself because you're just, there's your entire enterprise is built off of this negative energy, this hateful yeah. energy. Mm-hmm. And it's almost insidious, right? It's like, uh, I'm not big into comic books at all. And I'm really like bad comic lore, but I remember this one episode of Batman when I do love Batman, where uh, Batman basically said to someone, I forget, was it Nightwing or something? And Batman goes, um, someone asked him, why don't you kill people? Why do you just let them go? And Batman says, and it was profound. He says, look, anytime I meet a bad guy or a criminal, I want to kill them. And the reason I don't is because I know that if I start today, I will never, ever want to stop ever again. So the fact that I know that I'm never going to want to stop is what holds me back. And that just kind of gave me like goosebumps. It was like the idea that you looking into the dark side and the dark side's calling you. It's like Lord of the Rings and Frodo and the shot. Yeah. Like you're staring at evil right in the eye and there's something so seductive about it. But yeah something like the better part of your nature decides to tell you, look, just don't go down that path. And there's another way. It might be a little harder, but you can become the best in the world. You can become the best, the best, and still not burn bridges along the way and still set records and do all that stuff and still be noble about it. And it's, it's, it's harder to do it that way. It takes a lot of I guess, self-security and being able to introspect and find value within yourself. But if you can be loving to the people around you, as you just said, while still pursuing your goals, I think that's the best way to have the happiest of outcomes. A hundred percent. It's, you know, uh, of course, we all have our own personal goals, but um, when we care about the people that are around us that are, we're associated with in the middle of attaining those goals, um, it makes a big impact on who you are as a person. And there's a lot of people that have very successfully done it. Um, and I can think of a lot of athletes, a lot of entrepreneurs that have unsuccessfully done it. You know, there's so many people that it's like I said, what's the value of getting to the top of anything if no one likes you when you get there? Um, are you truly going to be happy for it? And so, uh, you know, shoot, we could go on this forever. But I mean, to answer your other question about like what my training was like. Yes. going, Yeah. So, um, you know, training changes pretty dramatically um, across levels in my sports. You know, when you're four years old, you're going to the gym for, you know, 45 minutes once once a week. And you're playing around in the, in the gym, jumping in the foam pits and things like that. As, you know, probably a teenager, I was consistently in the gym five to six days a week, four hours a day. And yeah, so it, it gets intense pretty fast. And gymnastics is one of those sports where you know, you're, you're trying to attain the perfect 10. Everybody knows gymnastics for the perfect 10. You're trying to get a perfect score. So the, um, in the past, in gymnastics, people actually did get perfect 10s. And if you look back at the routines now, it's like, wow, that wasn't perfect. They just they used to just give out perfect 10s. It's almost impossible to get one now, um, which basically means perfection is unattainable. That's why we are pursuing perfection. You're always looking for how can you make something a little bit better? Like I, people are always shocked to hear that at 32 years old, after two Olympics, I was still trying to work on doing a better handstand. How do I do a better cartwheel? How do I do a better forward roll? 
How do I make things look the, like the minutia of what we do every day is just like unending. There's always something that you can do to make it better. And so that's why we spend a lot of time in the gym. When I say four hours and, you know, even in college, four, six, eight hours in the gym, a lot of that is like detail training. It's not like, you know, if you were to go try to lift weights for eight hours, you're going to die. Um, gymnastics is very different. We would do some strength and conditioning, and then we would do some skill training, routine training. And then a lot of it is working on the details. Okay, I'm going to go over to the parallel bars right now. I'm, and I'm just going to do basic swings that a seven-year-old can do. But I'm going to try to do it with my toes a little bit more pointed, with my legs a little bit straighter. I'm going to try to be sharper when I hit my handstand. Um, because it's the little minor details that inch you closer to that perfection. And then you've got, you know, the difference between an athlete that can score a 9.7 and the athlete that can score a 9.9 or a 9.95 is astronomical. It really is like trying to go from 9.7 to a 9.9 or 9.95 is years of work. It really is. It's a radical thing that people don't quite understand. Um, and so it's, uh, it's a, you know, I'm obviously biased, but people, you know, in the gymnastics world say gymnastics is the hardest sport in the world. And it really comes down to the fact that there's just an unending book of detail work that has to be read and researched and discovered. And I, looking back on former athletes, what they did to be successful, trying to study them. You can't just do gymnastics. You have to be a student of gymnastics. And um, I think the same thing goes for if you want to be su successful at anything in life as an entrepreneur or an athlete, you can't just go, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go try it. You've got to become a student of it. And you've got to put in the detailed time and effort to get there, which is why I was at certain times in my career training, you know, six to eight hours a day, because I wasn't satisfied with not perfecting the little sins, because the little things are what affect the big things the most. Absolutely. Yeah. The little things, the devil is in the details. And it's fascinating to hear that. I mean, four hours a day, five hours a day, and it wasn't you just like lifting weights. I mean, it was like, you're trying to figure out, all right, if I put my toes in this way, if I stand in this way, if I perfect this cartwheel, if I do it in this way, all those little things end up creating like seismic changes down the road. There's a level of obsession there though. And it's a good obsession, but there's a level of obsession there. Like, I don't think you can get to the Olympics without having that level of obsession. And I guess, uh, why was the Olympics, why was getting there so important to you? What made you want to put out five or six like days of training? Like, even in high school, most kids in high school just want to party, just want to have fun. And you're putting out four or five hours of training a day. What made you decide to stick that course? Yeah, I mean, truth be told, it's very simple. Um I got the idea in my head when I was 10 years old and I couldn't get it out. Um, it was etched in there. I, you know, there was a specific moment from the Olympics in 1996 that I remember watching that really, uh, it was like just ingrained in me. And it was oh, watching, awesome. it was actually watching the, uh, the women's gymnastics team in 96 win gold. Um, wow. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. And I can give you every single detail of the moment it happened. Carrie Strug, 17 years old, last event at the Olympic Games. She's on vault. She needed to land her vault, which was, you know, I'll give you the technical name just for fun, but it's called a Yurchenko back one and a half. She had to land that vault, very challenging vault. She lands it, they win gold. If she doesn't, they 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 lose to the Russians. 
And she has two attempts. She runs down the 82-foot vault runway on her first try. Hits the springboard, flies over the vault, lands on her back. Doesn't make it. Whole crowd was gasping. Like, I couldn't believe it. And keep in mind, this, the Olympics was in Athens, Georgia, in the United States. So they're on home soil. First opportunity to win the Olympics the United States had. And, you know, here she is, maybe not going to get it done. And so she stands up, walks off the mat, and starts walking back to the beginning of the runway for her second and final attempt. And she's limping badly. Like she's Carrie, limping. Carrie Strug was limping. She had badly hurt her ankle. Um, she had a slight ankle injury before the Olympics. And then when she struck the ground on her first vault, she broke two bones and tore a ligament in her ankle. And so she is limping, grabbing her ankle. You can see the grimace on her face. And I was just, like I said, um, glued to my TV screen in this moment. 20,000 people are in the arena. Billions of people around the world are watching. I'm just this young 10-year-old kid who's like frozen in time watching my TV screen, wondering, can Carrie Strug, now my hero, my idol, get this vault done on a badly injured ankle? We didn't know how badly she was hurt. We could just tell she was in a lot of pain. And um, so here she goes. Carrie musters up the strength to run one more time down an 82-foot runway, hits the springboard, flies over the vault, two flips, one and a half twists. Boom, lands it stone cold on one leg. One leg. What? She kept her bad foot off the ground, landed, and they won the gold medal at the Olympic Games. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Oh my God. And she immediately collapsed to the ground after she had secured a completed vault and was crying. She was in tears. She was in agony. The place erupted in cheers. And her coach came up to her, scooped her up off the ground. Her teammates all went to the gold medal podium. Her coach carried her there. She joined her teammates. They all had gold medals placed around in their necks. Flag goes up in the air. National Anthem starts playing. And I remember staring at my TV screen. That's the moment that I was like, that's it. That's what I want. I don't know how to get there, but I'm going to try. And every single day that I trained, the days that were good, the days that were bad, the days that I had the worst performance ever, the days that I had the greatest performance ever, I always had that image of the women's gymnastics team getting those gold medals around their necks at the Olympic Games. And so it's it's a long story, but it's simple. It was one moment in time that I couldn't forget about. And um, it uh, you use the word obsession, which sometimes gets a bad connotation. Right. But I think finding your obsession is one of the greatest things that you could ever gift yourself. Yes. Um, I meet a lot of people that's, you know, talk about passion. And so many people talk, I got to find your passion, got to find your passion. Um, and I meet a lot of people that bounce around from passion to passion to passion and go, I'm never going to find my passion. Therefore, I'm just going to give up and I'm just going to, uh, you know, maybe I'm not somebody that's supposed to be locked onto one thing. I'm just going to do this and be okay at it. I think that's one of the most disturbing things that you could ever do to yourself. Do yourself a, a favor and continue searching for your obsession. It's out there. You've just got to find it. We all have the ability to go and find it. I just got lucky that I found it when I was 10 years old. And um, I, I think that finding that one thing that you cannot forget about every single day is so powerful. And um, it's, it's what drove me to the Olympics twice. I mean, that's the honest truth. That's incredible. That right there, I mean, I didn't know what I was searching for as I was conversing with you, but now I have the answer, which is that, which is what was that defining moment? I mean, yes, you can throw the textbook at me like, all right, this is how you do a backflip. This is how you kind of work your form. This is what you have to do to train to be an Olympian. All right. So 
you got to train five or six hours a day, four to five hours a day, five, six days a week. You got to kind of wake up early. You got to train late. You got to watch your diet. And yes, the devil is in the details. And great. Yeah, that's how you become successful. But what fed that obsession? And I, I use it in the same connotation you use it. Like, I, I think people need to find their obsession. What fed that obsession for you was this one defining moment where you're sitting there glued in front of a television screen, seeing this person fail at her first attempt, break some bones in her ankle, and then lands <laughs> lands the landing on one leg and wins a gold for the Americans. And that's like, I don't... For me, I had a similar moment when I watched Tony Hawk land the 1080, or sorry, the 900 of the X Games. And I, I remember realized that. it was insane. Like, yeah. you remember? Like, it got to a point where he didn't care about placing a medal. He just, every single attempt, and other skateboarders, I think Bucky Lasik was up there as well. Like, they were like, you know what? Just skip my turn, Tony. You go. And the competition was over. Like, he was just trying and trying and trying. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. That was an incredible moment. And that's the kind of moment like that you as an athlete dream of where it's like, it doesn't matter anything else that's going on around you. It's this one thing that I'm trying to do and I'm just going to keep doing it. It's kind of like, uh, do you remember Travis Pastrana landing the double backflip on the, on the dirt bike? Wasn't that insane? Crazy, crazy. But though, but I guarantee both of those guys had that idea in their head when they were little kids and they thought, how do I get there? I'm obsessed with this idea. I'm going to land a 900 on a skateboard on a giant half pipe, or I'm going to land a double backflip on a dirt bike, which is, you know, he went 40 feet in the air, told his mom, Hey, if I die before I do this, I'm sorry, but I love you. Like, this <laughs> is the, like, I, I remember those moments and that's the kind of stuff that I guarantee another little kid watched that happen. And he found his obsession. Right. And so, um, it just takes one moment in time of discovering something that you believe in so much that you're willing to do whatever it takes to go above and beyond and be okay with, you know, it's like you said, the devils and the details being okay with going through hell to get where you want to go. And people are always like, well, why did you do it? Why, why did you train so much? Was it worth it? Yes. Because I was obsessed with the idea and I was willing to do whatever it took. It's incredible. And like, and it seems like for you, the obsession, I mean, in some cases you have to transition over from being an Olympian and you still are an Olympian, but you can't, you're not competing where you've retired. But since then you've written a couple books and you've been an American Ninja warrior. I mean, I guess my thing is let's talk about some of that, but I also want to frame it up as, all right, you wrote these books. I mean, what was it again? Falling forward is one of them. And if I had known is the other one, right? Yeah. Yep. And you've been on American Ninja Warrior multiple seasons, and that's incredible. But I'm assuming that the reason for this is because there's probably some sort of obsession guiding you. What is your obsession now? And how does your, um, I guess, experience in American Ninja Warrior and writing these books, how does that play into that obsession? Or have you discovered it? Are you still looking for it? Yeah, no, I mean, um, to be completely candid, I'm searching. Um, and I tell so people that all the time, I've, of course I've written books and I've done Ninja Warrior and all this stuff, but to go from that one thing that I experienced for 28 years and then try to, um, redefine who I am has, has been a challenge. I'm, I'm looking for what is next. Uh, I have found that I have a passion for 
sharing my story with people on on corporate uh, stages. I speak at churches, schools, company events, all of those things, and I love it. And I love to be able to impact people with my story. Um, um, Yes, you've written some books and everything like that. But as far as finding your obsession, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I I have found some things that I'm really passionate about. I just don't know exactly where I want to go with them yet. You know, I I listen to other motivational speakers, people like um, you know Gary Vaynerchuk and Tony Robbins and things like that. I look at their lives and they live these huge lives and they impact a lot of people. And I think, you know, is that what I want to do? Is that where I want to go? Um, and it's something that I've somewhat pursued slowly and it's, it's enjoyable. Um, I also love to give back to, you know, like young athletes. That's why I wrote my first book. Um, you know, the first book came from an idea that I got from an interview, just like this one, I was talking to somebody from sports illustrated and they asked me, you know, what do you know now that you retired that you wish you had known when you were getting started as a kid? And I was like, wow, that sounds like a great book. <laughs> um, so I wrote a book called If I Had Known, and it's a bunch of different chapters about impactful moments from my career that I now share with younger people and the lessons that I got from them. Um, and so then I wrote the second book, which is my autobiography. It's called Falling Forward, like you mentioned. And so, you know, being able to share my story is, is a lot of fun for people or, or for me. But um, to tell you the truth, like I haven't found that next like thing that I'm just kind of obsessed with that I am willing to do whatever it takes to get there. But like I said, I'm searching. I'm always, uh, I'm one of those guys that I never say no to an opportunity. Um, if a door is open, I kick, I kick the door all the way open. I walk in, take a look. And if it's not for me, well, then I step out and I will never discover what I really want to do Unless I say yes to everything until I have the opportunity to say no. You have to say yes until you can say no, right? And I heard somebody say that one time um, because it's really easy to just every single thing that comes up in front of you to just go, no, not for me, not for me, not for me. You know, you don't know if it's for you unless you try it. And um, so I, uh, I, I am a big believer in continuing to just move forward in life with an attitude of, yes, let me give it a shot. Because it's just like I said, when I was 10 years old, one moment to kind of change your life and create that obsession that we keep talking about. Absolutely. It's like, how do you, how do you, the hardest thing is, so for a lot of us, like for my, me, for instance, I'll give you a little bit about my journey. I didn't know growing up what it was that I wanted to do. And for me, it was like, what, is my obsession. I was obsessed about discovering my obsession. And I knew that there were some people who just kind of naturally knew from like day one what they wanted to do. And then I would look at some of my friends and just people in the world. I look at certain like figures, like even Anthony Robbins at 17, he kind of figured out what he wanted to do. He was a janitor, 17, 19, something like that. And then he realized he wanted to be a motivational speaker. And I think he hates being called a motivational speaker because uh, he's not that. He's a transformational expert, whatever it is. But yeah. he found his stick, right? And I would look at these courses by people like Frank Kern, Brendan Burchard, these motivational gurus, and they would make it sound so simple. They would say, oh, well, if you read 10 books on a subject, you become the expert of that subject and you can make that your, your stick. 
they, it just didn't resonate with me. Like for me, I, I wanted to really figure out what, what my obsession was. And in many ways, finding my obsession became my obsession. And for hearing it from you, it must be challenging because, I mean, at 10, you knew what it was. So you gave gymnastics your everything. And now that you're like, you're married, you have kids, you're in a different phase of your life. And I think that's in and of itself is very rewarding. Like you don't have to try to find the person you want to marry. You don't have to try to find, figure out who you want to have kids with. You have that, you have that level of stability, but at the same time, you're still trying to figure out what that obsession is. And I think that if you were to figure it out, do you think you would give it the same amount of dedication and pursuit as you gave gymnastics if you could figure out what it is or what it was? I, I, I ask myself that same question every single day. Like if I find it, am I ever going to pursue anything as hard as I pursued the Olympics? And I, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but I know that I'm willing to keep searching and discovering. And one thing that I am obsessed with is this idea that I don't have a single ounce of quit inside of my body. Um, I am one of those guys that I've made the decision that in my life, a couple things, I'm willing to suffer to get to where I want to go. And I don't have the ability to quit. Um, and so this idea, I, I, I love what you're saying. The, your obsession became finding your obsession. I think that's a good thing. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Some people will say, hey, like, why don't you just pick something and go with it? You're not satisfied with that. You haven't found um, that that gives you purpose in your life. You are going to continue to search and search and search until the day you die. And hopefully you find it. But if you don't, well, you spent your life at least searching and never quitting. You've continued to do what so many people I feel do is they give up on, um, they give up on, I guess, um, greatness and they're okay with mediocrity. And that's not something that I feel like I have in me. And the more I talk to you, I feel like you don't have it in you. And I just, I believe that we all deserve to, every single one of our lives has more than mediocrity to give. And we all deserve a chance for something big. And I think that that's the mindset that I try to help people with is to get out of this idea of acceptance of where you are and to start to like people all all the time they're like wow john you really live with your head in the clouds i'm like great i like it up here <laughs> i like my head in the clouds it's a better view of the world um and i just don't accept where i am and i get satisfaction in the pursuit i don't get satisfaction in and being able to sit like right now with COVID-19 and not being able to do anything, I'm going crazy. Like I physically and mentally, like I'm losing my mind, not being able to, to move forward, you know, and there's so many things that people can be doing online and things like that to, to create careers. But I like to get out. I like to network. I like to meet people and see new opportunities and things like that. And so I'm, again, I'm just like you, I'm in a search for my next, for my next thing that I can truly pursue and, feel a lot of purpose doing. And I have a very purpose um, driven life now, but I can always look for a little bit more. One of the, so 
as you were speaking, I was reminded, have you ever read the book, The Alchemist? I haven't. I've heard of it, though. So one of the, the points behind the book is, and it relates to what you just said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he, the author goes that it is better to have died on your mission of pursuing your personal legend than to have succeeded on a less nobler path that was common. And I love whole, that. What was that? I said, I love that. That's so good. It, it just exactly resonates with what you just said, which is, you know, you're going to f- spend time pursuing your obsession. And, but what if you never, what if you get to the end of your life not knowing what it was? Well, is that life still worth, does it still have value? And I think it does because it, you only get one shot at life. So how do you organize it in such a way where you are pursuing your personal truth? And then there's a corollary or there's an opposite to that. So there was this incredible book. Actually, I have it on my table right now. It's uh, by Benjamin Hardy. It's called Personality Isn't Permanent. Phenomenal. Like I had like highlighted the hell out of this book. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it just came out on like June 18th, like, like last week or a couple yeah. weeks ago. But what his whole thing about, what his whole thing in this book is that no, your personality type isn't permanent. Like the way the person you were when you were born isn't the same person who you are now, that your identity shifts throughout life. And one of the things he talks about in his book is like the downfall. I think it was uh, Buzz Aldrin. So Buzz Aldrin, he a famous astronaut. Mm-hmm. I think, like, I, I don't quote me on this, but in the book, I think he says he made it to the moon. And second, I think he was the second man on the moon. There you go. Neil Neil yeah. was the first. Yeah. So Buzz Aldrin was the second man on the moon. And all his life, all his life, it was like this whole thing about being prepared to get to the moon. And he was on like, as you say, he was his head was in the clouds. He was on cloud nine. He finally made it to the moon. But the second he got back to Earth, that was like the trigger of his downfall. He became an alcoholic, a drunk. He couldn't last any relationships and he was depressed. And this whole thing was that he kept comparing his life to his former self. And yeah. because he kept comparing his life to his former self, his identity never shifted and he felt that because he had hit this peak, that he would never hit another peak again. And that's like, that's disastrous. To, that's a very bad mindset to have. And I think what you're talking about, which is like, you know, you said that you have no single ounce of quit. And the fact that you're still trying to discover what that obsession is, I think it's important. Now, what Ben in this book says, which kind of contradicts what we're talking about, is he believes that your ideal self really isn't something that's here it's in the future and that if you look into the future and you envision what you want to become then you can become absolutely that thing my only hesitation behind that is that yes i can envision myself becoming like a butcher if i want right and it's not like something that it's not it doesn't drive me it doesn't make me wake up every day make me want to just become obsessed about becoming a butcher just because i yeah. visualize myself becoming a butcher someday and i don't think he means that but his whole thing is that no you can become something bigger there's always another peak experience to have so i say all that to to, to let you know that this whole thing about finding yourself is very complicated it's very complex but I say all that to just ask you one question here. At age 10, you had this hero. She was on the uh, the gymnastics team, the USA gymnastics team. She, what was her name again? Carrie Strug. 
Carrie Strug. Okay. Yep. So Carrie Strug. Uh, she was your hero. Who's your who are your heroes now? Yeah, uh, I knew that question was coming. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, again, that's something that I am looking to. Um, this may sound kind of cheesy, but it's it's true. Um, some of the people that I look up to the most are the people that have tremendously tight-knit families. Um, I know a lot of families that have grown kids with kids. They've got grandchildren and, you know, parents who they've sent their children to college and you can see the pride in their face with the way that they have raised good people in their life. And regardless of the amount of money that they made in their life or the, the, the amount or lack of, you can see so much satisfaction on people that are proud of their families. And I know I'm completely shifting right now from athletics and entrepreneurship and things like that. But, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about is, am I going to be the person that raises good people to continue the legacy that my wife and I had as, as people, um, are they going to go on? Are they, you know, my wife, um, was an elite gymnast as well, never made the Olympics, but, um, you know, are my kids going to be super hardworking people that go and affect other people's lives? And when I'm, you know, in my fifties and sixties, am I going to be proud of the family that I produce? Am I going to, you know, not only be proud of who I was as a young person, but as a person who, you know, brought something into the world, you know? And so I, I look up to uh, like my, my parents, I look up to other families that I interact with that you can see um, their success comes from who they are and who they've made as people. And so I know that might be sentimental or something, but it means a lot to me. And right now that's kind of where I am. I'm, I'm trying to find um, what makes me happy, but also What's going to make me an extraordinary father and husband? Because I think those are the things that are going to bring me a lot more purpose than even gymnastics ever did. Because um, I've seen it. I've witnessed people that raise families and no, nothing that they ever did in their life was as meaningful as the families that they had. So what was that experience? Like what, what drew you to that realization? Cause that's pretty profound. I mean, I'm not married. I'm single. I don't have any kids. So I, I don't know what that's like. I'm still in the very much like me, 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 mode in terms of me being, but I, I have found my obsession. Like I, I, this, this is part of my obsession here and I'm going to do whatever I can to actualize yeah. this. But in terms of you, I mean, I'm taking a look at or this John Horton, uh, four years old climbing this pole. And then at 10 years old, he had this like peak experience. And it must have been the way I'm thinking about it. At four, you were just, you were already participating in gymnastics anyway. So you had six years of just doing gymnastics. And then suddenly at 10 years old, you were conscious enough and you were perceptive enough to see the value in what uh, Karen Strug did. So you, if I had seen the same move, I would have been all cool. But no, you saw something deeper because you kind of had an understanding of the jargon and the lexicon the vocabulary that goes into that you saw a deeper appreciation of that moment that that's something i wouldn't have seen so you went through all of this and made gymnastics your obsession 
when did family life and being a good father, a good husband, when did that start to shift in your mind as becoming something that could be a driving force of value for yeah. you? Well, I, you know, it's, it's crazy. Life just kind of happens. And um, I've always said shift happens. Yeah. Uh, you, you shift and things change because uh, my recommendation to you is don't rush into family life. Um, go and passionately pursue what you're doing right now to the fullest extent and don't let anything get in the way. But you never know when God's going to put something in your way and your life is going to change. And I, I full, fully believe that just you cannot help the situations that suddenly appear to you and, and, and the moments that happen to you in your life, because suddenly you may find your significant other and then a family and something I, I didn't. So this is crazy. And I tell people, I didn't even want to be a dad. I didn't want kids. I no. really, I didn't know. Um, and then I met my wife. We dated for four years. We got married. I was like, okay, this is different. I didn't see this one coming. And then all of a sudden she was like, Hey, I want kids. And I was like, Ooh, I don't know. But I'm the kind of guy that I was like, okay, let's go for it. My kids are the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my life. They truly are. Um, and, but it, it just kind of like, sometimes life just throws you things that you're not prepared for. And it completely changes your mindset. And one of the most profound things that I ever heard was my wife's father, my father-in-law. Um, he's a very successful man. He's uh, been in sales his whole life. He does extraordinary, extraordinarily well. And he looked at me and he said, the greatest thing I've ever done in my life is those two girls, is my wife and her sister. And he was an NCAA national champion wrestler, uh, almost made the Olympics as a wrestler, um, has had an extraordinary career in all different types of sales, very successful. And he told me with tears in his eyes, the most, the greatest accomplishment in my life is those two girls right there. His and wife and his daughter. No, his, his two daughters. His two daughters. Okay. Yeah. And he said, raising them to be the upstanding people that they are was the best thing he's ever done. And I was like, wow. And that's when it kind of hit me. And so maybe I'm discovering right now as I'm talking to you, that's my obsession right now, is creating a family that I can look back on and go, that was the greatest thing that I ever did, is um, creating a, 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 um, an atmosphere, an environment for my children to thrive and experience what I experienced before I had my family. So, um, you know, it's again, and I think the same thing will happen for you and any of our listeners, you will... You will shift without even knowing it's happening. And before you know it, the light bulb goes off and you're like, whoa, this is my path. This is what I'm trying to accomplish right now. So I think a lot of it is go attack with everything that you've got. Try to accomplish your goal, your obsession, but then be prepared for what life gives to you and run with that as well. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. So just take a moment to breathe. But what you're saying is just so profound because what this does is it puts for one, it gets someone into a peak state of mental performance. Like I cannot hit that goal. I cannot land that landing. I can't do that backflip or that bolt unless I fully become obsessed with this. So in your case, what you're saying is, look, everything might not make sense, but we all have some sort of an inclination of where to start. And it might be a little hazy. The, the whole puzzle might just be a broken puzzle right now. Things might not fully make sense, but 
you always have a starting point and you got to take that point, just give it your all, whatever it might be. And that along the way, as long as you attack everything with even with your most basic misunderstanding, because everything isn't clear, but you're just going for it. Eventually, life has a way of responding to the energy that you put out. Yep. And then it's almost twofold. It's like you did the thing that you were supposed to do. And then life presented to you something else. And in that moment, it's for you to respond or to reject. But you should respond to it. You should embrace it. Because in, in some ways, what Ben says in his book is that your past didn't happen to you. Your past happened for you. So the things that happen in your life, it happened for you. And as long as you attack everything that you've got, then suddenly the next path, the, the next step in your path kind of emerges. And hearing your story, it's like it's what, what kind of uh, gives me goosebumps, if you will, is the fact that I'm, it's almost like I'm hearing it come out of you, like this moment of realization, which is like, all right, like you are an Olympian and you met your wife while you're, I guess, still training and you had four years of a relationship with her. She wasn't an elite gymnast herself. She never made it into the Olympics. You kind of met while you were on your path. I'm not sure if you would have met your wife or if you would be where you are now if you weren't already on your path. Yep. So the fact that you met while you were a gymnast and then you met her because she was on the same journey in some ways that brought you two together. And in some ways, that's like an anchor from the past that you can bring into your new life. And what I'm hearing is though, see, one of the things that I found in my life was that we take for granted the things that we're obsessed about, the things that we're good at, right? And in your case, sometimes you get lucky and life hands you your obsession, but oftentimes the things that we're good at we take for granted for the longest time for me, like I've always been like, really like writing was one of my fortes. It was one of the abilities that I had growing up, but I, I took it for granted. And I thought that, you know, Oh, everyone writes. It's, 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 it's people do that. It's nothing special about what I do. But for me, I always had a way to write in a way that I found that other people couldn't. And for me, I found that as long as I embraced that natural ability of mine and this just fully became present, other doors opened up. And from what I'm hearing from you, it's almost similar. Like gymnastics was one thing, but it didn't just end there. But somehow along the way where there was this thread of you starting to become fascinated by the people that you met that had raised incredible families. And then to the point where you met your wife's father, um, your father-in-law, and he says to you now, he was like championship in sports and uh, he's sorry, champion in sports and other fields and great businessman. But no matter what, his greatest accomplishment was raising these two girls. And now it's almost like that is now a part of your bigger mission, which is, it's incredible. So I guess my question then is, all right, sounds like you're already doing a lot for your family. I know, and I know in our preliminary talk a couple of weeks ago, sounds like your kids are also in gymnastics. Like you take them into, all right, so what are you doing to be the best father, best husband? What are you doing to raise the best family possible right now? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, for me, I, I'm a very protective guy. So um, 
I, my goal is to obviously, um, you know, money always plays a role. Uh, I want to be financially stable enough to create an environment that is healthy for my kids. But more importantly than that, it's, it's passing down this mindset that you and I've been talking about this entire time, passing down, um, you know, what made me who I am and what I feel makes somebody a good person. Um, this idea of tenacity and hard work and loving people at the same time. Um, I, I want both of my children to understand that life is going to be full of ups and downs. It's a roller coaster of really good moments and really bad moments that average you out. Um, there were, you know, so many times in my life that, you know, things that I thought I would never get through. And so oftentimes we become really emotional people. We think I'm never going to get through this. And um, we do. Life goes on and we have to embrace our journey of what we're up against and whatever cards we're throwing, we have to play. And so for me as a parent, I just want both of my kids to understand this, this idea of you have to just keep moving forward in life and see what life throws at you and, and, and run with it. And I think, um, you know, you and I are talking about, um, you know, kind of our, our purpose and our journeys and everything. We don't know. We can plan. We can hope. We can work really hard. We can have goals. We can look down the road. But truth be told, we don't know what's going to happen. So the best thing that we can do is live in our moments and keep our emotions in check with whatever we're going through and try to keep our head as clear as possible to make a decision on the next best place to go. And so I, you know, my kids are too young to, to go too in, into much detail, too much detail about this kind of stuff. But I slowly try to instill some of these simple principles to them about, you know, when school gets really hard. You know, if you fail a test, are we going to, are we going to be really upset about it? Yeah, maybe for a split second, but then how do we move on? How do we be better from it? If you're going to do gymnastics and you go to a competition, you get last place. Are you going to be upset? Yeah, totally acceptable. I want you to be upset about it, but we're not going to dwell there. We're going to move on. We're going to readjust. We're going to create some new goals and we're going to continue forward. And that's really what my whole story was about. That's why I named my, my autobiography Falling Forward. Because I fell, but every time I fall, instead of falling backwards, I wanted to make sure I was moving forward in the same at the same exact time. Um, so I know, again, like it's a long answer to your question about how to be, for me, how do I accomplish this goal as a good father to my kids? But it's just taking my life and sharing it with them and seeing what they do with it and helping them along the way the best that I possibly can. And how do you... Because I've heard it a few times already, so and I know it is important because it's important for me, but where does entrepreneurship fall into that? I mean, who who is your audience? Uh, who do you want to inspire and influence? And do you think, and it might be a little too early to say, but do you think that you being the best father, best family person, raising the best family, do you think that there's something... Of within that drive that you can share from an entrepreneurial perspective? Um, yeah, uh, shoot. I mean, that's kind of a deep question right there, right? Um, you know, I think for me, in terms of what I can offer in my entrepreneurship and, you know, other than just being able to share my story with people, um, 
you know, I spend a lot of time. I've got a lot of little different business deals that I work on on the side and things like that. I think that I can lead and be an entrepreneur. Um, and I don't even know if this is the answer to your question, but by, by example, um, by people seeing my life, you know, one of the things I've noticed is oftentimes we see other entrepreneurs and successful people and we see, we see them on the outside. And we're inspired by them. We're inspired by those people and what they say in their podcasts and what they say in their interviews. Um, and that's how you build a brand, right? You, you build a brand by explaining who you are and what you're trying to accomplish. And so by being this family guy um, and by raising a good family and by also um, working on sharing my story with kids and working on writing books, I've kind of created this, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of this image of who Jonathan Horton is. And um, I think that if I continue to build on that image, um, it just makes the impact that all of us, if, if you build on this, this image that you have, and if it's real, if it's genuine, um, your brand builds. And um, I think that's what I'm trying to do right now is, is continue to show people that you can you don't have to be what I see so many people be. They go out there and they're like these sharks in the world. They just go after it. It's like money. How do I get more? How do I do this? How do I sell more? I want to show people that by being a genuine family guy who works really hard, that you can be very successful in this life. That's incredible. So I have a couple questions for the, in response to that. So one question I have is, so now this is where... I just, I just don't know. Maybe you know better, but what aren't most people also, they kind of discover that for instance, like let's just say Olympians. Now they're former Olympians. Now they're starting their next phase of their life. Wouldn't they want to get married? Don't they want to have kids? In your case, I guess you didn't want to have kids, but it's kind of fell into your lap and now you have kids. But do you think that most people are trying to do that? Are they trying to start families? Are they trying to inspire people? Are they trying to have like the best possible family life? Like, are they or are they not? Because it sounds like you're so passionate about that. There must be a, there must be a need that you see in the market or in the world that's not being fulfilled by other people. So, like, is that not the case for others? Or what's your take on that? So, you know what? Um, it's crazy. Even though I have a family, I'm a big believer in you know having a family and raising a good family. Um, if it's not something you want, don't do it. Um, I have talked to so many people that they feel the pressure of society to get married and have kids. And I say, forget about the pressure from society. You do what you feel is right for you. And if that's not something that you feel, continue to do what you're doing. And if life throws that at you, then like everything else, yeah, run with it and be okay with it and accept it. Um, yeah, I, I meet other couples that they go, oh man, we feel a lot of pressure to have children, but neither of us want kids. What do we do? Don't have kids. Like if you, if you don't want to have children, don't do it. And, and it's not coming from a place of selfishness. It's more of a place of, um, I guess, self-awareness. Know who you are, know what you want, and find a way to capitalize on what life has given you at this very moment. And so I think that that is, if there's a niche that I have that I, and a, and a gap in the market, 
It's that there's so many people out there saying, here's what your life needs to be. You, uh, you know, go out and there, you need real estate and you need residual income and you need all of these things. And you need to do this and this and this. I'm sitting here telling people work really hard, be obsessed with what you have, have really big goals, but know that the most important thing is kind of like living in the now and being really grateful for what you have but also being prepared for the world to throw something at you that you may not be prepared for. I'm telling people that life is crazy and things are going to happen that you may or may not see coming. Just be satisfied with who you are and what you have and don't make brash decisions based on what society tells you that you need to do. You do what you want to do for you and your spouse or your kids or whatever it is. You do what your heart and mind is happy doing. And if it's being obsessed with becoming a multi-billionaire in real estate, go for it. Like, do it. But if your close friend over here is telling you to do it, but you don't want to, then you do what you need to do. And, um, you know, I hope that if someone's listening to this and they do feel pressure from society to live a certain way, but they know in their heart that that's not what they need to be doing right now, I hope that they are getting some, re- like, um, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Just hearing from somebody else that like, I don't listen to like, I listen to encouragement that I'm looking for, but I don't listen to the world. And if the world's going to tell me that I have to live this way, I, sometimes I almost push back. I'm like, well, why are you telling me to do that? I need to discover for myself what it is that I'm passionate about. It's incredible. So I want to ask you then, I mean, okay. So yes, what I'm hearing is this might not be for everyone. Some people, not everyone is, uh, not everyone wants to start a family. A lot of the time you'll feel pressure. Uh, maybe you don't want kids, but you feel pressure for society. And in some cases people just get married because it's the next thing that they, that's the next step in the journey. And those people might not be the best fit for marriage because I mean, what if you end up raising a family and, but you're not really present for your family and it's, creates this entire like really bad downward spiral and ripple effect. But I guess my thing is what I want to ask you is, so let's just back up a little bit. Like you said, I mean, so you're married. How did you find your wife? How did you start dating? Was it hard at first to say no at first? Um, And how do you make your family life work? And how how do you make it work? Like, how do you, how are you raising a, a, a successful family? How are you giving it your all? Because yes, I think that there are people for them. It, it's not the right thing. And that's great. But what about someone for someone who it is the right thing? What if they do want to start? What if they want to find that right person? They want to raise a great family. Uh, they want to instill great values. And for that person, what would you say? And what has your story been like up until now? Like, like I said, how did you find your wife? I know that you're yeah. both gymnastics and everything, but what was that entire journey like? Well, for me, um, I think it's important to remember that when I was younger, um, I had one goal. My goal was to become an Olympian. And I was all in for that goal. And when I, my freshman year in college at the University of Oklahoma, um, I was sitting in the cafeteria. I was eating some lunch. I was about to go train at the gym. And a young girl named Haley walked into the cafeteria. She was a senior in high school. She was coming to check out the university and see if that's where she wanted to go. And next thing I know, her and I started talking and boom, my future wife fell into my lap. 
Um, I wasn't looking for a wife. I wasn't looking for a girlfriend or a fiance at the time. Um, it was just kind of, it was divinely inspired. It was just what, like, it was just what happened. And so, um, I think that it's, you know, you, you mentioned people that are looking for that, looking for that relationship, looking for that family life. Um, I think it's kind of like trying to go to the Olympics. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you put yourself in the best situation that you possibly can to get there, but you don't actually know when it's going to happen. Um, I try to give myself the best possible, um, you know, shot at getting to the Olympics one day. Um, I wanted to make sure that I put myself in the right places at the right time with the right kind of training and hope that it happened. And I think that when it comes to relationships and family, um, you have to keep in the back of your mind, okay, this is my goal. So if, you know, if that's something that you're looking for, then you have to put yourself in the right place at the right time, the right, the, the right situations. And, um, you can't force it. You just got to continue to kind of move forward and wait for life to show you and present to you, um, you know, what is it you're looking for? And I can kind of make the analogy, uh, with gymnastics. Again, I knew a lot of gymnasts at a young age that were in the sport, even though they didn't want to be in the sport, their mom and dad put them in gymnastics and said, Hey, I want you to become an Olympian. And they knew when they were teenagers that they didn't want to be Olympians and weren't going to make it to the Olympics because they didn't have a passion for it, but it was being forced on them. And you can kind of look at that as like society forcing you to do one thing or another. It typically doesn't work out. Like none of the kids that I ever knew that were in gymnastics to go to the Olympics because someone told them to ever made it to the Olympics. It just didn't happen. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm, I really believe that you have to, ha like, it's got to be within you um, to do these things. And if society is pushing you to do something you don't want to do, you're going to do it and it's not going to be done well, or um, you're going to do it and you're going to fail in a dramatic way. And so um, everything that we do in life has to come from within. And we can be inspired, we can be encouraged, we can hear other people talk about what they do. And if a light bulb goes off, that that's what we want to pursue, like, go for it. But if it's got to be forced, you're not going to do it well. And I really believe that. Um, I, I meet people that try to force life all the time, and they're so miserable. You cannot force life. Life just kind of has to happen. And every day, we just work as hard as we can. That right there is incredibly insightful it's like we cannot force external things to happen right like you couldn't have forced a situation to occur where you met Haley it just kind of fell into your lap right or um you couldn't have forced yourself into receiving some of the accolades that you received in many ways life responds to your output in a way but you can't really force the thing that you said, which is so profound, is that you kind of just have to just set yourself up to be in the best possible position to receive whatever it is that you want to receive. In your case, your number one obsession since like day one was becoming an Olympian. And so you were working your tail off, making sure that you're training night and day and eating right. And that was your obsession. But because you were focused on your number one obsession, it just so happened that you met Haley uh, during her, like, she was a freshman, her freshman year, right? She yeah, was so senior. she was a senior in high school. Yeah. We started talking, and then, of course, she came 
to school the next year and we started dating officially. And there's something profound. The reason why it's so profound is that there's almost like a level of trust there. It's like uh, almost like a trust fall. Like you just hope that like you do the back tuck, right? And you know, your spotter is going to catch you if you fail. In this case, like you really can't focus on the failure. You just have to focus on your form, your technique. You got to give it your all. So in this case, like it, there's, a, there's a level of trust here. And I want to give you so just some of my, a little bit of my backstory. Like I was uh, pressured into pursuing medicine. So like Mayor's going to become a doctor and that's what he's going to become. And that, that's it. Like since it was almost like since day one, I was groomed into becoming a doctor. And, but I remember when I was like four or five years old, I was just obsessed with David Copperfield and magic and Matt. And I never became a magician, but I did go down that path of trying to become a magician when I was younger because it seemed cool. But what I found out was as I went down that path of learning magic tricks, what I was really interested in, in was the mind and how it perceives magic. And then I started studying hypnosis and like that led me down this rabbit hole. Wait, wait a minute. Can you hypnotize someone into becoming whatever you want them to be? Then wait a minute. Why doesn't this work? Oh, what, what is identity? And that became my biggest obsession. And it was just like, because I opened up that door and it led me down other doors until I eventually discovered what it was that I was really obsessed about. But had it been forced upon me, had I just pursued medicine because that's what was expected of me, I never would have really been able to explore my own potential. And to, to hear you talk about these kids who at a very young age are forced into gymnastics, they're forced into becoming Olympians, and they hate it. And they, they never make it because it's never their own obsession. It's never their own volition or their own choice. There's something profound about that. And what we're ultimately hearing is what I'm hearing is that, look, you, you have a path, you give it your all, and you do your best to set yourself up in a way where you just you, you do the best that you can. And as far as all the other things that you might want, well, okay, they're going to come anyway. I mean, you just being a person living on planet Earth, you're going to find another guy or another girl along your path anyway. You're going to find business opportunities anyway, whether you're working at McDonald's or Pizza Hut or if you're an Olympian. I mean, you're going to find business opportunities. You're going to find these experiences. And I kind of feel like these experiences are universal. I mean, if we, if we are around people, we're going to find ways to either get married or have kids. We're going to find people we're going to want to date. We're going to find business opportunities. We're going to find other goals and other experiences and blah, 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 blah. But do you want to experience those experiences within the context of the subpar, mediocre state of like self? Or do you want it to be in the most actualized, the most aspiring sense of self? And like, I don't know if you and Haley would have been able to make it work had you just decided, you know what? I really love gymnastics. I really want to be an Olympian, but let me just not believe in myself. Let me just pursue a degree and let, let me just become like a, an accountant. I mean, all right, cool. Right. I, I don't know if that would have worked out. And I don't know if that would have also been a great thing for you in terms of you being the best father figure for your kids, because there's always that lingering. What if like in your case, like your biggest thing was what if, what if I don't do this? What will that do for me later on in my life? And in terms of like the thing that is like, you want to make it so that, and I took a note over here, um, you train with the fear of what if, and you're just, you never, ever want to get anything less than your fullest potential. 
if you lived in a state of like being less than your absolute best, then I don't think that you would have been able to be in a position now where you can inspire other people to have the best families and et cetera. So I, I really think what I'm hearing from you is that whatever it is that you're going to do, do it for you. Don't do it because you're being pressured into it. If you want to start a family someday and it's for you, then sure. Then I might have some like uh, things I can help you out, build that out. But fundamentally speaking, it's not something that you're saying that you don't want them to, to pursue starting a family and having kids just because that's the, the thing to do. You yeah. do it because that's what you want. And I think there's something really, really powerful in that. Well, so it's so funny. Uh, two, two quick stories, two people in my life that you just you really made me think of right now. One of them is my wife. So my wife is actually a non-practicing physician. Um, she, two things. She actually got a full ride to Stanford University. What? Yeah. Full ride gymnastics scholarship to Stanford. Um, her mom, sister, brother, or mom, sister, uncle, and dad all went to the University of Oklahoma. She felt like that was home. And I still tell her, I'm like, you're crazy. You didn't go to Stanford on a full ride. Um, but she ended up passing Stanford, goes to the University of Oklahoma, does pre-med, gets a, a scholarship to med school down here in Houston, Texas, where we live. Her whole life, because of how brilliant she is, she almost got perfect scores on her SAT and ACT. She's, she's so smart. Um, goes to medical school, decides she wants to be a pediatric anesthesiologist. As she's finishing, she realizes, all right, everybody has been telling me to be a doctor my whole life. I just became a doctor and I hate being a doctor. She hated it. And her and I made the crazy decision to, for her to be done. And we started a family. So she has never practiced. Um, and I know you're looking at me just like everybody else looks at me. Like that's the wildest thing we've ever heard. My wife is so happy. She's never been happier in her life. She's a mom. She stays at home. She watches our kids. Um, and that is what she felt like she needed to be doing. And a brilliant woman like her could be making tons of money, you know, doing all whatever physicians do. And that wasn't what she felt inside she wanted to do. We have to follow what we feel is necessary. And the second story that I want to tell you is kind of another doctor story. Um, my teammate from the Olympic Games in 2008, his name was Raj Bobsar. Um, Raj was told from a young age he needed to be a doctor or an engineer his entire life. And Raj comes from a um, very traditional Indian family. And um, his parents put him in gymnastics thinking, you know, our son's got a lot of energy, but we don't want him to do gymnastics for very long. It's when he was a little bitty kid. And when he got older and he was one of the best gymnasts in the country, they were like, uh-oh, Raj, you, we don't know if we want you to do gymnastics anymore. You need to focus on your studies. But he was so good, they, they couldn't take him out. And the coaches begged his parents not to take him out. And he loved gymnastics. What do you know? When he was 26 years old, he won a bronze medal at the Olympic Games. And he was my teammate. And now he travels to India to talk to kids about the value of sports and athletics. He's like, does these incredible things with, with sports in that country and here in the United States. And Raj lives in LA. He's a stuntman. He's an actor. And he's living his life. He never wanted to be a doctor or an engineer. That was something that was pushed on him that he made the decision. No, 
I want to be an Olympic gymnast. And he did it. And now he's living this full purpose-filled life. And those are just two examples that I can think of right now off the top of my head of people that said, forget what everybody else is doing, like saying, I'm going to follow this dream and I'm going to work hard at every single day and see what life throws at me. He probably had no idea that he was going to be invited to India to work with he probably had no idea that he was going to be asked to go to L.A. and do small films and stunts. But here he is just kind of rolling with the punches as somebody who's highly skilled in something that he loves. And so I think that is such an important thing for us to remember. If you do what you love, other doors are going to open things, opportunities, and just continue to move forward and see what life throws at you. Oh, my God, that was profound. So. Like, there's a lot of incredible stuff here. For, for one, your wife is a non-practicing physician. So she got a full ride to Stanford. She didn't go. She went to Oklahoma State. And then from there, she, I mean, she made it into med school and she did everything. And then did she make the residency as well? No, never went to residency. Okay. But she hated becoming, hated being a doctor. So she yeah. decided... Did she make it? Did she actually make it through med school though? Yeah, like done. <laughs> like done. Got got through it. And so she, we actually um, had our son um, through her fourth year of medical school, and that's when the switch flipped in her brain. And she never told me she didn't want to be a doctor until she, we realized we were going to have kids. And she goes, "You know what? I've never body this, but everyone my whole life has always told me I need to be a doctor. I did it because people told me to do it, but." And she was like, I even thought I was going to follow through with this thing that I hated. She was like, now that we're going to have a child, I don't, I like, I'm admitting I hate this whole world of being a physician. She couldn't stand it. And um, I'm, I'm so thankful that we got pregnant and had our son because she would have been doing something that she didn't love her whole life because it's what she was told. But when we had our, our, our kids that, you know, it's like I say, that light switch went on and she was like, no, I'm not going to sacrifice that maternal instinct that she had of being a mother um, for something that the world told her that she had to do. That's amazing. So what is she, as her purpose now is to become the best mother possible? And so, is, is there a rift between her past life? Because I mean, she was so good at academics. People said she could have became a doctor making tons of money, as you said. Yeah. So is her purpose now to become the best mother? So two things, actually. Um, she started her own clothing company out of our home. What? She's an entrepreneur. Yeah, my wife was like, okay, how do I be a mom, which is what her number one thing was, and put her brain to work? And uh, she started her own company out of our garage. She loved um, kids' clothing and, and like fashion. So she created a um, kind of like a, like a, I don't want to call it a boutique, but like fashionable children's clothing she designs um she has people around the country that make the clothes that she designs ships it to her she does well before the pandemic she did shows she's got an online website and um you know one of her goals was to create like trendy kids clothing that wasn't astronomically expensive and she did it she accomplished it um she started that about three years ago and she's able to work out of our home be a mom have a business and so again like she shifted shift happens. You know, she went, I don't want to do this, but I want to use my brain, but I also want to be a mom. Figure it out. She, it's like life threw her this crazy curveball with having children. And she just kind of worked through it. She kept moving forward. And I think that like, 
I think sometimes we get caught up in what we think we're supposed to be doing instead of doing what we want to be doing. And that's what my wife, like she's a prime example of it, um, of being able to go, this isn't right. Like I need to be doing something else. Let's figure it out. And then there was Raj and he's like, so he's raised to become an engineer, a doctor. And then now he's like doing stunt and stunt double work in Hollywood. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Like that doesn't happen. Like, like it, it, it doesn't like when you're in an Indian Pakistani house, I'm Pakistani. Like it's, it doesn't happen. Like uh, for me to even be doing this podcast, this, this isn't supposed to happen. Right. And so it's like, it's like, I'm supposed to be in some like a white coat somewhere in a laboratory. And that's just like, Okay, I, I get it, but there, there's so much more to our potential. There's so much more. And I think Raj is far happier doing what he does now than otherwise if you were in a lab coat somewhere. I mean, it's just a cooler story. This gymnast who wasn't supposed to be a gymnast and ends up wearing a bronze in the Olympics. He's an incredible coach. He's begged for his parents for him to stay. And now he's in Hollywood and it's and he's gone to India and he tells people about the value of sportsmanship and like I think that's incredibly important. And then like hearing your story about your wife, how she shifted into now doing kids clothing. And uh, what I'm really hearing from your story is that there's a very, very deep, like even more than I thought before, because now you're talking about kids clothing. There's a deep family element that you've got going on here. And I think that as we part from this conversation, as you look back at it, there might be this moment where it starts to, I'm starting to see that like this, this Olympian turned American ninja warrior turned author. I think within your story, there's something so valuable for the audience who wants to give it their all. They want to become that family man or family woman. They want to have an incredible family at some point, but it's like, you can't just have one without the other. When I say one without the other, I mean, so Jonathan Horton could not be this, this, author, this American ninja warrior, this husband, this father, had he not pursued his first obsession, which was becoming an Olympian. And those things that you learn from your former life do spill off into your next life. And same with Raj. I mean, Raj, I don't know if he's married or whatever, but one day when he does get married and he has kids, I mean, the best, I think the best environment in which to raise a family is one in which the parents did pursue their passions and they got what they wanted. In the case of your wife, it was kind of opposite, but she ended up pursuing her passion anyway, because the second you had your first child, she was like, listen, I hate medicine. So she left that field. Now she's doing entrepreneurial stuff. She's putting her brain to work and she's got this kid's fashion line and she's got her website. She's doing shows. And then you're involved in that as well in terms of like you speaking on stages, going around the world, sharing your story. And I, I really think that there's something there. But I also, want, because I've been down this path, I know that it's also not something that we can force to, like the, the, the story is constantly evolving. And I'm sure that a year or two from now, there's going to be another shift. But to be fully conscious of the fact that this is an obsession of yours, I think that's something that's it's inspiring to hear that you were, you went through the Olympics, you found your wife, and now you're starting your second phase, but you're still just as obsessed. And 
It's not about really figuring out everything along the way. You don't have to have all the answers because shift will happen constantly. Yeah. But are you living your truth? Are you following what I call it is following your curiosity, right? Um, what are you most curious about? And that curiosity is what's going to lead you into whatever your transformation is. My curiosity for the longest time has been what is identity. It still is that. Now, right now, yeah. I'm exploring that. I'm creating systems behind it and bringing the world to into this platform. I've always known that identity was something much bigger than just this icing on the cake. And I think by hearing your story, people are starting to realize that there's so much more um, coming out of this. I mean, so what are your thoughts now after having talked with you for the past hour and a half? I mean, are there things that you learned about yourself or are there things that you would like to impart with upon the audience? Are there questions that you have for me about my journey? I, where are you now? Yeah, no, I mean, I think what I'm learning more and more every time I have these conversations is just how um, important it is to live our lives with an open mind um, and to pursue something, but also be okay with um, cur the curveballs that life throws at you. I think it's really, really easy to, um, you know, be in the pursuit of this thing and you think that you're going where you want to go. Life throws you a curveball and we, we, we fight the curveball. Like we, we, you know, and the more that I shoot, like explain my life to you, I'm like, wow, like uh, so many ups and downs and twists and turns that I've gone through. I'm, I'm even more thankful and living in this moment of gratitude right now that, I am okay with um, having to 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 go a different route than I originally thought. Um, to to take a turn that I didn't foresee, and just you know, okay, like let's let's run with it. Let's see what happens. I mean, uh, I think I mentioned this in the beginning, but you know, one of the crazy things that's recently happened to me is you know, it's a small detail in my life, but two years ago, I met a guy who had been in. Uh, I think he's been over a hundred mixed martial arts fights, uh, buddy of mine. He owns a, uh, a MMA academy here in Houston called Global Martial Arts, and uh, we became friends. We actually met through American Ninja Warrior because he was trying to do Ninja Warrior, and uh, he goes, "Hey man, you know what? I'm a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. I think you should come try it." And I was like, "What?" I was like, "No, I'm I'm just training for Ninja Warrior right now," and he was like, "I think you'd be really good at it, man. You should come try it." And I was like, ah, not for me. Well, he, he bugged me about it for like six months until finally I was like, okay, his name's Jimmy. And I was like, Jimmy, I'll come try, I'll come try some jujitsu. And so I go in there and day one, I fell in love with Brazilian jujitsu. Here I am two years later, still doing it. I'm going to, and you know, I was supposed to be in my first competition before the COVID-19 hit, but I found a new thing that I love and I had no idea. So it's, uh, you know, to me, like, I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know if I'm going to get into MMA. I don't think so, but it might happen. Who knows? I'm just one of those guys that I'm just like, I'm here for the ride, you know? And as I discover new things every single day, I want to learn about them and I want to try it and I want to see where it goes. And I think, like I said, you just have to be open-minded to what the world brings you and not, you know, for, for me with gymnastics, I was 
zeroed in, obsessed, but even within the context of my gymnastics career, who I became, the final product of my gymnastics, wasn't what I saw when I was younger. I wasn't, um, you know, thinking about some of my heroes back from when I was a kid. I didn't look like them when I look at the final product. I didn't have the same grace and lines and skills. I was a completely different person. I was Jonathan Horton, um, a very different athlete. And so, you know, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Be okay with the evolution of who you are and be open-minded to the way that you can change and adapt and evolve. This was like incredible. Like no matter what, I mean, think about this. We try so hard to be Nostradamus, to try to predict the future. We try to find so many ways to figure out the outcome of something. And when you try so desperately to figure out the outcome, the fact is we can't, there's no way for us to know exactly how things are going to turn out. So you mentioned it's you're in it for the ride. And in this case, like this friend of yours, uh, he presented this idea of like, all right, let's, uh, why don't you come on down and try some Brazilian jiu-jitsu and six months of him asking you and you finally say, all right, let me try this. And now two years in, you love it. And it's not something that you would have been able to predict, but you're just open to the experience and you're in it for the ride. And while you're in it for the ride, you're going to give it everything that you've got and you don't know where yep. it might take you, but you know, that there's a, there's something beautiful behind that. No matter what it is that you're doing in life, don't half-ass it. Nope. Just, just go with it with everything. If it's a choice that you've made, if it's something of your own volition that you decided to let me enter this academy or this, this career path, why would you give it anything less than what you're fully capable of putting out there? And I think that's why a lot of people stack up, end up in a rut because they don't give it their all. So they keep learning the same lessons over and over and over again, and they never progress. But if you enter that arena, you give it your all, then you should be happy to know that there is a transition point. There is a shift. Maybe for you, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu might be something that you do for six or seven years. And then from there, maybe you do end up getting into the MMA. I, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, it's just about being open-minded and it's brilliant. It's beautiful because who you ended up becoming isn't who you thought you would have became. Because as you mentioned, like, yeah, what you see on TV is the people that you see on TV. But as you went through the journey of becoming an Olympian, it was you becoming that Olympian through the lens of Jonathan Horton. And it's hard to really predict who we're going to end up becoming, but life is transformed by your identity and your presence of mind and who you are. Yeah. So I think it's very powerful stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's it. And I, you know, I don't really have anything else to add. Um, you know, I think <laughs> it's, it's tough to try to explain, I think for anybody to try to, go, here's what's in my brain here. I want you to try to understand the way that I live my life, but I think it's important for all of us to share our stories. And that's the last thing, you know, that I, that I think I have to offer is whatever you've gone through, your story is important. Your life is important. You all have a purpose and there's somebody out there that may be going through an experience that you already experienced that you can help them with. And so, um, don't be afraid to, to share who you are. Try to get your mind out there in words or on paper for people. We're all different. We all handle situations and life in a different way. And, you know, I think 
it's very, very valuable to share um, whatever you've gone through with other people because when it comes down to it, if you put other people before yourself, I know we've talked a lot about you know, like doing what you think is right, but there's something also very powerful about giving back to, to your fellow man as well. Absolutely. All right, John, it's been an incredible conversation. I've had, I just, I just have the most utmost respect for your journey. And I think, and I know without a shadow of a doubt, the people listening to this talk, they're going to experience transformations in their own lives as well. Just knowing that you don't have to have all the answers, just to know that if you're just open for the experience and you just give it your all and it's something that you've chosen, even if it's crazy, even if people don't believe in you, if it's something that you're drawn to, then why would you just give it anything less than your fullest best, your fullest potential? And as long as you do that, things just have a way of working themselves out. I think there's there's a beauty in that message. So thanks for having this conversation with me. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a blast chatting with you. Uh, one last thing. Is there, how do people find you online? How do they reach out to you? Yeah. So people can contact me on, um, so on Instagram, I try to check my messages on Instagram once a week or so. Um, uh, so my Instagram handle is jhorton11, jhorton11. Um, I'm also on Twitter every now and then, but I'm not very active. So if you try to contact me on Twitter, it's j underscore Horton 11. I may take a while to get back to you, but I also have a Facebook fan page. And then, uh, if I actually hand out my email as well. So if anybody wants to get a hold of me, you can go to info.jonathanhorton at gmail.com and, uh, love to get to know anybody that's listening. Okay. So that's, uh, Instagram is the best option for just contacting you directly with this J Horton 11, sometimes Twitter J underscore Horton 11. You've got a Facebook fan page under Jonathan Horton, I imagine. Yeah, it's under my name. Yeah. Okay. And then an email is info.jonathanhorton at gmail.com. Gmail.com, that's right. Okay, and then you've got a couple books as well. So make sure you guys check out jonathanhorton.net as well. That's your website. You're going to change it though, right? Uh, so if you want uh, to check out a book, um, you can either go to Amazon and order one, or you can order it directly through my website, hortonathletics.com. I have them. I ship them out, but I make sure I sign it, write a little note in there for you if you want it personalized. So that's kind of the difference uh, in getting it from my website. So if you're interested, uh, just go on there and order. All right. Very cool. All right. Thanks so much, John. And uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Talk to you soon.